Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Swizzitz Teller. Swizzitz is a software engineer, instructor, blogger, vlogger, conference speaker, and author. He has trained the engineering teams from multiple Fortune 500 companies on React, Redux, GraphQL, Serverless, and other modern web technologies. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so before we jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners a little introduction to yourself? You know, uh, tell them how you got started in the industry. Hi, I'm Swizz. I tell everyone to call me Swizz because it's much easier for English speakers to pronounce than Swizzettes. That was a really good attempt, Clayton. Actually, not attempt. That was really good, Clayton. So I've been coding. I, it's actually my birthday this month, and I realized that means I've been coding for 25 years. Uh, which is basically for like two or three forevers in internet time. And um, how I, I got started in the actual industry, basically in high school, I was looking for a summer gig and I found some coding jobs, got somehow got in, in the door and started coding away. And then I basically never stopped since then. And it's been a few forevers in internet time. <laughs> okay, so uh, what do, what do you work on these days? Uh, what's a sort yeah. of normal day for you? So these days I am a software engineer at a startup. I personally prefer working at startups, although I've never actually tried working at a large company, so I don't really know what it's like. But based on the rumors I've heard, it doesn't sound like it would fit me personally. Um, I'm working at a Series B startup in San Francisco where we are trying to fix women's health. I'm I'm not one of the founders, so I don't fully know what that means, but the, the tech we're building and the challenges we're solving from the engineering side are super interesting. And as somebody who moved to San Francisco to get into startups and rocket ships and so on, the metrics are just, it's amazing. Um, and nice thing about the fun business metrics is that they also make really interesting engineering challenges, like how we rebuilt a jQuery code base in React in a year while also growing the company about 5x at the same time. So that was fun. Um, yeah, I think that's basically what I'm doing day to day. I kind of do stuff on the side as well. I'm trying to explore senior mindset and what makes somebody a proper senior engineer. Um, although it feels like with rocket ship day job, it's getting harder and harder to find time for that. Yeah. So what in your estimation makes a senior engineer or, or the senior mindset? Because I guess for, for a while there, it was anyone with three to five years of experience could be labeled a senior developer. But that's we're finding as the industry is growing and evolving and maturing somewhat that maybe those definitions are, are changing and and adapting a little bit? Yeah, I think there's a big challenge in our industry with kind of with how young it is and how fast everything is growing. Um, I think it was Bob, like Uncle Bob 
is his internet name, who once upon a time calculated that the number of software engineers about doubles every five years, which also explains why everything more than five years feels like forever on the internet. Um, but I think, like you said, one, one of the ways to become a senior engineer is to kind of get into a fast growing company, stick around for a couple of years and voila, you get the senior, in, the senior engineer title. But I don't think that's what actually makes a senior engineer because there's a lot of the experience and the battle scars that most senior engineers are missing these days. And I honestly mostly note, mostly noticed that when I started interviewing more, part of being in a fast growing company is also participating in the interviews and uh, vetting people. And I realized that there's so many people who are a senior engineer on paper and can barely code their way out of a wet paper bag, let alone design a system. It's like, <laughs> hey, design a simple system for us. And like, uh... I've had to break it down to, can you write a for loop on a whiteboard? Oh yeah, for loops are really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it, especially in a large company where half the job or more is code archaeology. When is the last time anyone has written a for loop? Daily. <laughs> well, I guess not not so much with like um like React, but you know, like just your normal your normal programming loops all the time. Loops all the time, yeah. But when's the last time you wrote a double loop? Oh, I don't do those. <laughs> That's where it gets really tricky. <laughs> well, so for for game programming, but normal programming, the nested loops terrible. Idea. So I think I think that's one of the things that happens with a lot of senior engineers is more and more meetings, less and less actual coding. So they kind of forget the coding part. But the more worrying trend that I've noticed is that they don't get a chance to design systems. And then when you need them for a more younger startup or somewhere where they will have actual more responsibility and you say, hey, design a system to solve this problem. And they're like, I've never done that. I have no idea where to even get started. Yeah, that's that's a, a tricky problem once you, you kind of break it down like that because if you've been at a company for a number of years and you've elevated into a senior role position and you're counted on to be in those meetings and you're you're counted on to do the design the the pull requests and the code reviews and those types of things and maybe the mentoring of other developers that a lot of your time is eaten eaten up and a lot of your opportunity to work on new and exciting things and experiment and learn from those processes is is lessened because you just don't have that ability. You also probably don't have the exposure to external systems or to new and different systems that your uh, problem area isn't concerned with necessarily. Yeah, and I think that's... I don't know if there's a... I don't know if there's a solution to that. I'm trying to figure it out. Um, one trick I've noticed for me personally, as I've gotten nudged more and more towards that mentoring and senior stuff, is uh, on one hand to kind of let others do the work that I already know how to do. Um, because, you know, like how many times can you write a checkout form before it gets boring as heck? Or write a simple for loop? So I've, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of time you can create by let by letting go of your favorite Legos and letting others play with them, which 
in a way is can be very uncomfortable because you're pushing yourself into new areas that you haven't explored that as much yet or you're not an expert in that but you kind of have to go where you're not an expert to keep learning new stuff at the same time you can get a lot more bang for or bang for buck for your time if you just focus on where you're an expert and dive as deep as possible and never look up well uh one of i think one of the more more difficult things for me has been um like you said like moving on from the things that you've done a million times well i the things that i do more than once i usually like try to get like a real good solution for it and so it's like you know not taking the I guess the joy of discovering it on their own away from the, from the, the more junior developers and just being like, here's a grab bag. Look, it's got this thing in it. 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 Everything's done. You don't have to even work. Just like <laughs> not, not giving that to them or more likely forcing that upon them has been a, a difficult thing where it's like, I've, I've already got the solution to your problem here. And I can't, I can't do that for one they normally don't want to take it and, <laughs> and it just ends up causing causing problems in the team but also like they need to go through the experience for some of those things and learn you know their way of doing it probably using different patterns especially on on the web cuz you know what was popular 10 days ago in react is is not popular anymore we're not doing that we're move, we've moved on to something else uh, actually funny thing about react um i think the whole JavaScript ecosystem is getting ridiculously stable. I remember trying out React 18, the alpha version or pre-alpha that they released a couple months ago, and just blindly upgrading a project I haven't touched in four years to React 18, and it just worked. Literally nothing broke. I was, I was kind of impressed with that because I don't think I've ever seen a JavaScript ecosystem a portion of the JavaScript ecosystem that is that stable. Mm-hmm. But I think your other point is really good, where how do you find the balance between newbies or junior developers doing too much work versus just taking the solutions that already exist? Because one thing I've noticed is that the more used you get to a certain framework or a library that you're using a lot, kind of the less code you write and the more you let the tools just do their job. And a lot of the brittle code comes from people who don't fully understand the tools that they're using and kind of make a bunch of workarounds for stuff that the tool is already handling anyway. Yeah, jQuery developers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's... I, I like spending time with uh, mentoring younger developers, younger in career or age or neither or both or whatever. Um, and, and seeing how minds work and understanding that uh, Joe likes to learn hands-on this way and Susie likes to, to learn um, by digging through documentation in this way and Sally likes a completely different approach. And I think that helps a little bit of team understanding as well in that we we all need to get to a shared understanding of the code base and the problem set that we're working on and working towards. And if we can all get there from our own path and, and we all have that shared understanding, then we can all continue to progress and do bigger and better things because we're not so worried about are we all doing the same mundane things this you know in such a way that that we can all pick it up. Uh, it's, it's, we don't have to worry about that. We've got that covered. 
now let's work on innovation. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point because one of the biggest values of software engineers, and I think that's something that takes a bit of a mindset shift, is to build assets rather than just do the work. Uh, it kind of depends also on what kind of organization you're in, because if you're in a marketing agency and your job is to churn out landing pages for clients, there isn't that much innovation there. You're literally just hired to do the work and keep doing the same work over and over. Um, but in more product-oriented organizations, the the cool thing that happens is that if you solve a problem well enough, I don't think you can ever solve it perfectly, but if you do it well enough, suddenly you have a piece of the infrastructure that nobody touches for the next two or three years and it just keeps going and it keeps working. Um, and I think that's where the big value of software engineering comes from is building those assets that keep doing the work when you're not there to do the work. Um, and like thinking in a way of how can we automate this or automate most of it so that we can go do something else. Yeah. And how do we get there? How do we change our mind in into thinking that way? Because I remember early in my career, and, and I've been doing this 20 plus years or so myself, that that I remember the first, what, three to five years, I, I was a nine to fiver. I came in, I did a, a well enough job uh, to to complete my work and leave right on a normal schedule every day and go about my life and not worry about work. And then at some point, I started to to feel a little bit more ownership of the code I was writing on the solutions that I was creating on the work that I was doing, that I was kind of more eat, sleeping and breathing the work that I was doing, May, maybe bringing some of that home a little bit more than I should. But like, what what is that mindset where we, we start to take on the ownership and, and that understanding? Yeah, I think you, ownership is a really good uh, word you use there because it does come down to ownership is feeling, how do I say this? I think the biggest mind shift, mindset shift that happened to me was when I switched from someone who thinks like a pure technologist, who's like, okay, I'm going to get this really interesting engineering puzzle slash um, mental challenge that I have to solve and I don't care about anything else, more towards somebody who's like, well, I'm, re- I'm here because we're building a business. And I think of myself as somebody who's building a business, building a startup, and I just happen to use coding as my tool. But the code itself is a tool. It doesn't matter. It matters a little bit how good the code is, but beyond a certain point, beyond like a certain baseline, it doesn't matter how good the code is, if it, especially if it's not solving the problem. It becomes a lot more important to solve the actual business problem and also to think like that, like a partner slash owner to the product managers and the business people so that you can push back on their stupid ideas. Because PMs often have really crazy outlandish ideas and I have never met a PM who isn't extremely happy when you say, okay, so that's stupid, but if we change it a little bit, if we do this instead, then we can do it and it solves 80% of your problem. And I I think everyone has always been super excited about that. I'm missing the second part of that statement. That's where I've gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think what, what helps there is, is if you 
kind of break down the the ask, break down the request that the the PM is is making, and say what is it we're trying to solve? If if we do this, like like you say, if we do the eighty percent, does that solve the problem well enough to uh, to 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 get the 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 result that we're looking for, or to get the information that we need out of it? Yeah, it's like um, the traveling salesman problem, for example. Notoriously NP-complete or NP-hard unsolvable problem in computer science. It's just, if, if somebody comes to you and says, we need to find a way to optimally route salespeople through a, uh, through a map of a city or whatever, you can, you can, you can say, this is impossible, I'm not going to do it because we have proven time and again that this is an unsolvable problem. Meanwhile, every shipping company in the world runs a computer system that has essentially solved the traveling salesman problem for real-world applications because they don't care about solving it for every application. They just need the UPS trucks to not waste too much fuel when they're working in San Francisco or in Dallas or in New York or wherever. It's fine if it's 90% good. It doesn't have to be 100%. It saves them billions of dollars per year. No left turns. No left turns. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the most surprising result. I still don't understand that part. <laughs> Although I'm always curious if that would work in Europe because in Europe you can't turn right on red. And I think that breaks the solution. Yeah, but it's all roundabouts. <laughs> it is all roundabouts. <laughs> You know, so one one of the things um, in your in a senior mindset is being able to be productive with your time and understanding um, how to protect that time, um, whether you're coding or whether you're um, looking for solutions. Whether you're, you know, how long do you do you spend your time? What what are some of the methodologies and um, tools and tips that you might suggest for someone who um, is looking to protect their time? Mm -hmm. So in terms of protecting your time, I think the quickest path to being a 10x developer is to force multiply 10 other developers so they're faster. So one of the things I like to do is always do PRs first thing in the morning because when somebody is waiting for your code review, that is literally the highest impact work you can do in that moment because you unblock their entire project, you unblock a person, or sometimes you, you can even unblock three other people by doing a PR. Um, the other thing is, and this, is kind of, this came kind of recently, is uh, have more meetings rather than less meetings, which is really weird from a coding perspective, and it's terrible for banging out code. But I find it super impactful when I can parachute into a meeting for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and there's five of us who are stuck on a um, on an architecture decision or an architecture problem. And you can, like, you listen to everyone's perspective, you get input from everyone, and then just being the person who says, okay, let's do it that way. If it doesn't work, I'm, I'm taking the heat. Don't worry about it. I'll be, I'm going to be the one who says, I own this decision. We, we all decided together, but if it goes wrong, it's on me. If it goes right, you are the brilliant genius, and I will tell everyone. Um, people really appreciate that because a lot of the times making a decision is just about who's going to take the heat if it goes wrong. Um, and in terms of decision-making as well, reading, 
uh, how to think in bets or th thinking in bets by Annie Duke really helped me because she basically she talks about it through the perspective of poker of playing poker. Um, you can never make a perfect decision, but if if it's a low risk decision, just do whatever because it doesn't matter. You can always change it later. If it's a high risk decision, what kind of information do you need to de-risk the decision as much as possible? And then at some point you just make a make a bet. And the nice thing about being a software engineer is that you know it's not like oh my god, where are we going to invest ten million dollars for this company or for the next quarter? It's just oh, what is the decision I'm going to make that we can rewrite next week if it's wrong? You know, a lot of our decisions are not as impactful as we think they are, or rather they're very easy to change later. Um, so that that has helped a lot, just deciding quickly. And then what I found really helpful for heads down work and getting the coding stuff done is to just block my calendar and say from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. every day or whatever works for you, that's maker's time. I'm not taking any meetings unless they're super important. And that's when I'm doing my coding. Um, it helps that a lot of my team is on the East Coast while I'm on the West Coast. So maker's time happens to correlate with when they aren't online anyway, which is super useful. Um, but in the past, I've noticed even just killing Slack really helps. Um, and I think my phone has been in do not disturb for the last 10 years or something. <laughs> it's just, you know, I'm, I'm not a like heart attack surgeon. I, there is no, there's no such thing as an emergency for a software engineer. Unless you're in DevOps on Facebook. Today is not a good day for you. Yeah. Today was not a good day. Yeah, and, and I find that a lot of the communication that we have doesn't need to be immediate. It it can be send off an email, look for a response maybe tomorrow. Send off a, a Teams or a Slack message before lunch. Maybe I'll have a response when I get back from lunch or sometime this afternoon. It doesn't have to be immediate. It doesn't have to be synchronous. It, it can be, uh, if I if I absolutely need an answer, I'm going to figure out how to unblock myself or find someone w that I can disturb to get the appropriate answer and then continue about my day. Yeah, that's also a really good trick. If you're mentoring someone or you have somebody on the team who likes to ask a lot of questions, which is great. Questions are amazing. I like to just by default, always wait 15 minutes before replying or maybe 20 minutes and Half the time, by the time I get around to replying, they're like, oh, yeah, I already figured it out. I just asked you first. One of the things you said in uh, a minute or so back, uh, I think it's ama amazingly uh, important and impactful to this idea of a senior mindset. And I think it's uh, something that many people don't understand, even many seniors and even, dare I say, some architects, almost all of them. Um, and that is that, you know, your decision and your is really not that important. Um, so how do you like sort of, how do you come to that understanding and realization? And then also in, in understanding that the decision isn't that important, you need to take one that's decisive and then go in that direction, fail quickly. How do you like, 
um, bring that into what it is that you're building and and the way you're making that decision. Yeah, I think that that obviously depends on what exactly it is that you're doing. Um, like naming a variable that's internal in scope to the function that you're currently building. If you can think of a good name, you can name it X, and then when you figure out what it actually means, you can name it you can name it later. Same with a lot of functions. If you're designing a new architecture for for a system that your company is betting its future on and is expected to live for the next year or two, you might want to take that decision a little less lightly. Um, what really helps there is getting everybody who is making the decision together in a room and kind of really talk through it. Um, that helps. And then again, just kind of keeping in mind how long the decision has to live for. Like, what is the time span of the system that you're building? Um, like, I keep coming back to marketing pages, but if you're building a marketing page for Black Friday, almost nothing really matters. It's it's going to be fine. Even if you're working on it for a month, you know, it's going to die by Christmas and you're definitely not reusing it next year. So whatever. Um Check out systems, maybe follow some best practices, stuff like that. But even then, you can always fix, you kind of just keeping in mind that software can easily be fixed. You can always fix it later. Um, especially on the web, the worst that can happen is that you double charge somebody or triple charge them and you send an apology email and press the refund button a couple of times and it's fine. Um, although there are some... Yeah, like maybe don't follow my advice if you're writing um, microcontrollers for ABS systems in cars. But <laughs> <laughs> it works pretty well on the web, I think. Yeah, and I think that we also kind of have to be honest with ourselves when we're assessing those things because uh, you know everything has to be built to last forever and be infinitely scalable. But really, the rea- the reality is like most of the time that's not the case. Yeah, exactly. Like um, even the oldest companies, the oldest web companies right now that are still alive are about, what, 20 years old. And those are some of the oldest running software systems that we have. I guess airlines have still have COBOL databases and banks still have stuff from who knows when. But in terms of the web, the current oldest stuff is around 20 years old. And I think if you really went to look at the code base, it probably doesn't have much to do with the original code base that that they started with. Um, and even like from the startup I'm at right now, one it's one of my favorite examples of how true this is. They started a web their web app before I joined using jQuery and Express, and they built it all in jQuery until they raised like a twenty three million dollar Series A. Um, they started using jQuery. This is, I think this is my favorite part. They decided to use jQuery in like 2018, which is well past when jQuery was caught, you know? Um, but it was what they knew. So they just chose something that lets them get out fast because the startup was essentially desperately trying to meet demand. Um, I think they, they hit the... Yeah, they... They said that they hit the rate limits on some important API they were using within nine minutes of launch because 
That's how much the demand there was. And those are the kind of startups you want to join. You want to join a startup that builds something and, and runs out of limits or hits their uh, OKRs in the first six minutes of launch. And it's like, oh shit, we totally underestimated how popular this is. And you know, then uh, like they started in jQuery, they, they, they got going, they were able to get pretty far. And then when they raised more money, when they had more time, when they've proven that this is worth working on, worth improving, they hired experts and they hired, they started growing the team and we came and refactored in React because that is a better basis for going into the future. And now that we're in the future and we've raised even more money, we're now working on some of those critical backend systems that got to the point where, well, it, it got us this far, but it's not going to scale anymore. Um, so I guess my point is that when it comes to software, if it works out, you're going to have time and ability to fix it later. And if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You're not going to fix it anyway. Yeah. Imagine if they had spent the time to go ahead and, and architect it for the scale that they expected or hoped might come and spent three years, uh, three additional years architecting out such a system using Kubernetes and and all the latest and greatest of everything, and they were late to market and also incurred all of the cloud hosting charges and fees associated with that. Yeah, I know a few startups who got a got technologists who are who weren't um, as I don't I can't think of the adjective, but they didn't pragmatic. think they didn't pragmatic. I love that. They weren't thinking enough in business terms. So they built some a demo that works really great, is amazing, costs a couple thousand dollars a month to run on AWS, um, blows your mind when you look at the demo, but has never actually launched to users. There's a an old forum post. I don't remember where I saw it, but it's it's like uh, somebody they hire somebody hired a consultant to look at their code and look for improvements and things that they could do better. And the someone was building rocket systems for mis- for rocket missiles. And the consultant goes, reads all the code, reads it the C++ or C or whatever they were using. It's like, you know, you're leaking a lot of memory over here. This is really bad software. You should, you should fix this uh, missile guidance software. And the CTO looks at it and, sa- and says, yeah, of course it leaks. We estimated how much fuel the rocket has double the the amount of memory we think it needs, and then it's going to defrag itself anyway. doesn't matter. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so is there is there anything else for the senior mindset that we may have uh, missed asking about that that's super important that people should know? I think the the biggest thing is that it's something that you have to learn over time. I'm still figuring out if it's something that you can power level yourself towards by reading about it. Um, but I think the main the main part is to surround yourself with the kind of people who think this way and kind of get exposure over time. Um, that's also why I I started the senior mindset mailing list is because I don't think you can sit down and get this in an afternoon. But if you read it over time. I think you can slowly shift your mindset towards the more pragmatic, the more business-oriented, more ownership kind of mindset. 
Yeah, I feel like I feel like it's uh, fairly related to wisdom, which can only be uh, gathered by screwing up a lot. Yeah, yeah, or learning from other people screwing up. Yeah, the galaxy brain is learning from the people you give advice to. I learn so much from from like junior developers all the time. Exactly, you give them advice and you see what happens. Yeah, you're using what library? It's amazing. What uh, are there any other resources? I know you've mentioned. Um, uh, sorry, I forget the book that you mentioned, but uh, the about making uh, choices like bets. Uh, yeah, so I mentioned thinking in bets. Um, there's the, another one that really helped me was something something ownership by Jocko Willink. Um, really good book. Kind of aggressive, but if you get past the aggressive parts, the lessons are really good. I don't know if I can plug my stuff. I have a senior mindset mailing list on seniormindset.com that a lot of people tell me is really good and they really enjoy. Um, yeah, I think those are the main, the main parts. I kind of always come up with new ones. There's so much out there. Uh, so it's almost sort of kind of been the, the focus of the whole episode, but uh, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started? So juniors at this point, or those maybe looking to level up their own career, maybe uh, seniors who who aren't quite seniors yet. In that regard, I think the biggest mistake I've done in my career is when you feel like you're on a plateau or when you start wondering if you could be growing faster, the answer is almost always yes. And when, it, when you get that to that point, changing jobs is almost always a good idea. Uh, especially in the mar- the engineering market we have right now. But yeah, it's one of those things where when you start wondering, am I on a plateau? The answer is yes, you definitely are. And you've been on a plateau for way longer than you think you've been. Um, and for starting out, I I think the most important part is just get your foot in the door. And I think a lot of juniors way over-index on getting into huge, big companies that are way too selective, while there's a sea of smaller companies that will give you really, really good experience for slightly less money. That's true. But they will give you really good experience and they're just hungry for talent. Yeah, well, even and slightly less money is still really good money in, in you know, today's age. Yeah, that's true. And then as soon as, you're, as soon as you have those few years of experience, everything else gets so much easier. Where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? Uh, yeah, so I have a blog slash mailing list sort of thing on Swizzes.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Swizzets. Um, I, yeah, that's where I announce most of my things. I also have SeniorMindset.com is specifically for Senior Mindset stuff. And I have ServlessHandbook.dev, but we didn't really talk about that today this much. All right, well. I'd like to uh, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Swizzitz Teller. Swizzitz is a software engineer, instructor, blogger, vlogger, conference speaker, and author. He has trained the engineering teams from multiple Fortune 500 companies on React, Redux, GraphQL, serverless, and other modern web technologies. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com and catch us live each week on Twitch and be sure to follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev. 
This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Thank you.